so we will be starting up uh, the regular meetings in a couple weeks time we'll send out an email when that happens for Friday nights and uh, yeah looking forward to getting back into the book of John and today we'll be in the book of Job starting in verse in chapter 32 starting in verse 1 and let's pray Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day you have made. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. We're so appreciative, Lord, filled with gratitude for all that you've done and for who you are and that you are worthy, that you are glorious. And thank you for that, that moment when I was driving today and the clouds parted and the, the sky shone through and that light of the sun just broke through. And I pray that you would do that in our hearts too, Lord, that you would just... Uh, get our eyes fixed upon you, that we would see your glory, that your light would shine, that we would have a better understanding of you through this time. And we would see areas where we can, we need to repent. We need to surrender to you and to rejoice and to be thankful for all that you have done. And we pray for those who are doing it tough, who are ill at the moment. We think of those affected by the volcanic eruption in Tonga and, and other places, Lord, the people that are struggling, the people that are suffering, those who are hungry and thirsty, Lord, we pray that you would supply all their needs, that they would look to you and find a savior, their maker who loves them. We thank you, Lord, for this time and for your word and for my brothers and sisters gathered here today. Those who are watching online, we pray that you would bless, that you would strengthen and edify your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you guys ever tried to change someone's mind that was already made up? It can be very difficult. Uh, and sometimes the only way to make peace is to really agree to disagree. Just find a place. All right. This is what I, my perspective is, and this is your perspective, and we're not getting any closer, so we'll just leave it. And as followers of Christ, as ambassadors of the gospel, we will be coming in contact with people who don't share our faith who don't know God. And we're called as believers to give an answer for the hope that is in us in with meekness and fear. This, and this involves prior knowledge of who God is and what he has done, what he has said. And at times we thought that if I could just give the right argument, the, the right answer, the perfect word at the right time, it would just change their mind. It would change their hearts. It would save their souls. But we must realize that's God's doing. That he has given us his word. He's the one who changes hearts. He's the one who opens minds. And he does use us to hold forth his truth. But we need God for that. And so we could put a lot of pressure on ourselves to perform in the moment. And then feel guilty that we didn't really measure up. Because we didn't see any visible change. But no, God's word is true. It is like good seed. That when it's sown in a heart. Even on hard ground the Lord can cause it to be fruitful in time. Job was a righteous man. God allowed him to suffer at the hand of Satan, ultimately to reveal his own mercy and compassion, that God is merciful. And Job grieved the loss of his children and his wealth, his servants, his health, the loyal support of his friends. And he was disturbed by God's silence because when he needed God, when he cried out to him, it seemed God was not answering him. And in this void of silence, it was filled by Job's three friends who spoke accusing words about how he had sinned. Now, he was really responsible for all that he suffered. And his suffering was evidence of being judged by God. 
And Job, he, he rebuffed all these attempts to accuse him. He justified himself and he gave these strong arguments that left his friends speechless where they go, well, we're not changing Job's mind. Job is, his mind is made up that he is righteous and we can't change him. And so now we have a new speaker that comes into the picture. Elihu, who'd been listening along to their discussion, and he takes issue with everybody except God. He, he's angry with the, the arguments that have been put forth. He's angry that Job is justifying himself rather than God. And from what he says, there's a lot we can learn. So Job 32, starting in verse 1. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. Eliphaz and Bildad, they all had three goes. Zophar had two goes to try to make their points to Job, trying to say, you are responsible for these things that you're suffering because of your sin. And Job refused to receive that. He said, my conscience is blameless. He justified himself that he hadn't done no wrong. In fact, he had done much better than many others that he could compare himself to. And when there was a lull in the conversation... When Job stopped justifying himself and his friends stopped accusing him, Elihu decides to speak up as this independent moderator. And it says he was a Buzite, likely a descendant of Buzz, we read of in Genesis 22:21. And in their culture, it was customary for the elders to speak and the younger would remain silent. Uh, and so he was listening. He didn't barge into the conversation, but finally he felt compelled given the lull and the reasons he gives. He takes a whole chapter to explain why he should say something and that he plans to say something. Um, he gives us his reasons. And it says his anger was kindled against Job because he justified himself rather than God. He made a lot more effort to try to clear himself of being seen as an evildoer rather than promoting the goodness and glory of God and the righteousness of God. He was like in this defensive mode, trying to protect his honor and to say, show why he was not in the wrong rather than pointing to God who is always right. Who's always glorious and good. And his anger was also stirred up against his friends because they condemned Job in their ignorance. They didn't have any good reasons. They were, they were reaching for words, trying to, to drive home their point, but they didn't even have evidence to support it. And he expected, these are elders. These are wise men with great life experiences. Surely they'll have wisdom that will disarm Job's arguments of self-defense, but they could find none. And he ought to be credited, Elihu, for waiting to speak. He listened, and then at the appropriate time, he opened his mouth. We can be guilty. I can be guilty of speaking without listening and also speaking without thinking. So he, he has thought about this. He has listened. He didn't just have an idea and barge in. He, he considered what had been spoken before he spoke. And we see he was filled with anger or wrath, which is not in itself sinful. We see that God 
God's wrath is kindled by sin. We read this in Romans 1, 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest to them in them for God has shown it to them. God is able to have wrath without wickedness, but we are not God. Anger can be a breeding ground of all kinds of sin and ways that we, a way that we can justify going beyond what's right in the things that we say and do to show our displeasure about something. And the Bible has a lot to say about the pitfalls of anger and that if anger abides and continues, it is sin because we have not yielded to God. We imagine that our anger is always springing from righteousness. Like this is righteous indignation. It's not really anger, but the reality is it can spring from our flesh because I've been offended because my pride has been hurt because I feel like someone's overlooked me. So that's, that's not righteousness. That's not for the glory of God that that's rising up in us. And our expressions of wrath can be foolish. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 27, three, a stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Anger has a way of clouding our judgment. It leads us to transgress, but Elihu, he demonstrates self-control. He opens his mouth. He's speaking constructively. So we pick up our text in Job 32, starting in verse six. So Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare any opinion to you. I said, age should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. In those days when the elders would gather together and speak, it was an opportunity to hear respected people discuss things. It was a time to learn, a time to, it was like, I guess, watching Q&A when you're really interested in the subjects and the people on the panel. And you're like, I'm, I'm interested to hear what they have to say. And people would gather for these conversations and Job, he was the, once the greatest man in the East. He was the most successful businessman that could be found. At his, when he started talking, princes shut up. He was highly respected. And he began to speak. And Elihu, he's listening in from the beginning. He expected those older than him to be living life well and to have experience and wisdom to share. And he was incredulous when Job's friends didn't know what to say to him when they were out of words. And he had found problems with their arguments at the beginning. I like what G.K. Chesterton wrote. He said, I believe what really happens in history is this. The old man is always wrong and the young people are always wrong about what is wrong with him. And I think the older folks among us will appreciate that more than the younger and the younger you will get to know what that means a little bit better as you get older. But yeah, the old man is always wrong, but the young man is always wrong about what's wrong about him. Then you realize that sometimes he showed some restraint. Elihu did to listen, to consider before speaking. And he justified speaking 
Because wisdom comes from God who created man, not by the amount of years you've spent on this planet. Experience, having money, enjoying success in business, it does not produce wisdom any more than a visit to cafe makes you a skilled barista or a baker. Just being here, growing older, does not always correlate with increased wisdom. Elihu's correct. Wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God, it's only from him. It's not to be found on this world. In Exodus 31, 2 and 3, we read that Bezalel was filled with the Holy Spirit who gave him skill and wisdom to construct the articles of the tabernacle, which is really cool. It's like, here's a, a tradey. He's working with metals and wood and fabrics. And the Holy Spirit gave him ability to make those things. It was God, not his experience, his calling or his age who made Solomon a wise king and ruler over his people. And the fact that the wisest king became a fool in his old age, it's a warning to us all that God is the source of wisdom and we must depend and rely upon him in faith for wisdom going forward. Because even a wise man or a wise woman can make foolish decisions. And wisdom, don't assume you'll be wiser in time by some mystical spiritual osmosis. But you can obtain wisdom today in the person of Jesus Christ through faith in him. Because he gives us understanding. He has become wisdom for us. And Proverbs 4, 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Wisdom from God. Job 32, verse 10. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you. And surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. Elihu's invested in this conversation. He's waited for the appropriate time. And he's now going to offer his opinion. He's preparing them to receive that. It takes him a chapter to get to that point. And the way that this is written, it suggests that Elihu is the author. Now, we don't know for certain who is the penman of the book of Job. But the way that he speaks, where it was always uh, speaking in the third person, now it's switched to first person, where he says, I thought, I will say this, and then I said this. So the way that it's written throughout it suggests that he could be the writer. And so he was there the whole time to observe it. We're given some insight into his thought process where he says, therefore I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. And he said in verses 12 and 13, he says, you guys did not bring a convincing case to Job. Just in case you didn't know, he was not convinced by you. And they spoke off the cuff they avoided the questions that Job asked, kind of like a politician who has their set talking points and they ignore the question that they're asked completely. They just want to say what they want to say. It doesn't, and so he's like, he called them out for that, Job's friends. And he felt like, if I don't say anything, maybe these three friends will think they made sound arguments and Job was just being stubborn, but they missed the point. They missed the mark and I, I need to explain how they missed the mark. 
They thought they could expose and vanquish Job's pride with words, but that was something only God could do. His suffering and his pain and his loss, it did not rid him of his pride and his feeling compelled to justify himself. And he told Job's friends, Job hasn't directed his words toward me personally, and I'm not going to use your arguments toward him. I'm going to bring a new line of discussion here. And he put some practice, put into practice the wisdom we see in Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Why don't you turn there? Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. These are complementary verses. They, they do not contradict each other. Proverbs 26, verse 4. It says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. So the one that is name calling, the one that is mocking, the one that is shouting in your face, we shouldn't stoop to their level in engaging with a conversation with them. If someone uh, hurls a personal insult at you, it's we're not to respond in kind to speak to them in the way that they speak to us. But sometimes it is wise to answer a fool and offer correction lest he become conceited and think he is in the right. There's a time to correct foolishness that can lead people to ruin. And at times silence can be seen as agreement with foolishness when we should speak up motivated by love because we care about the person much more about being right. It's because we love them and we care about them. We care about the people that are listening in that they would hear the truth that they would know God and be walking in his ways that we open our mouths to speak not to justify ourselves, not to just get something off our chest, not to vent, but constructively guiding with the wisdom of God. When Jesus was accused, when he was asked questions with the aim to entrap him, Jesus asked questions of his own to expose the hypocrisy of the people asking him, not to humiliate them, but that they might repent and realized that Jesus spoke the wisdom of God and they marveled over the things that he said. We can be more motivated. And again, I can be more motivated by proving someone else wrong or proving myself right more than caring about the person themselves. that I really love them. And that's why I'm opening my mouth. It's because I love them and I care about them. Not because I want to make them feel foolish. Job 32, verse 15. They are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them. And I have waited because they did not speak. Because they stood still and answered no more. I will also say, answer my part. I too will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Elihu was a bit dismayed when Job's friends were out of words and the, the approach they took with him. 
They're out of words, but he is primed and ready. He says, I am like bursting to speak. It's like when wine is fermented, it produces carbon dioxide. And so you'd always use a new wine skin and vent it. Otherwise it could burst and all the wine could be lost. So he's like, I've got to just say this. I've been thinking about it. I've been listening to you and it's time for me to speak now. I have an opinion and I'm ready to give it. Uh, and though he wasn't an elder in his community, God gave him an opportunity to have a part in this conversation. And that's really neat that he wasn't discounted because of his age, because he was younger than them. Like, oh, well, who are you to speak? He's like, well, God created me. God has given me wisdom and I want to share that with you. The first part of Paul's exhortation we hear often where it says, let no one despise your youth. And you can grab onto that and say, yes, we shouldn't be despised. But th- do you know the second part of that verse? He gave a directive of how you ought to live, even in matters that arouse your anger. In 1 Timothy 4.12, it says, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And those are words that we all ought to take to heart, regardless if we see ourselves as youthful or older. Be an example. He's young. He's like the angry guy. He's kind of angry at everybody. But what I find admirable about him is he listened carefully. He didn't feel compelled to take a side except God's. He wanted to be on God's side. He wanted to glorify and honor him. And he wasn't seeking the favor of Job or his friends. He wasn't looking to impress the other bystanders that were hearing this conversation. He refused to show partiality to anyone. He didn't stoop to flatter. A lot of people would have been very motivated to try to find favor with these rich, influential men in society. But he says, I'm not going to flatter you. God would take me away because he knows God's He hears my every word. Ultimately, he's going to judge me according to the things I say. Would you agree that we put in great effort to be heard? People at rallies, they'll use a megaphone to amplify their voice so they could be heard. People paint messages on, on billboards and big on signs so they can hold it up and at a distance, someone can read and see that message. They want their message to be heard. People post on social media where they're holidaying or what they're eating or what they're having for dessert so other people will see it. I mean, that's the only reason why you put it out there. They want people to see what's happening in their life. And we can feel hurt when we aren't heard, when we feel like people aren't listening, when people don't understand us, but know that God, your maker, he knows you, he hears you. He knows all that you've spoken, even the thoughts that you haven't dared speak. He knows those things. And knowing all our words are seen and known by God, it should keep us from hastiness to speak. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. I am grateful God's given us his word that we can hear. And he's the one we should hear, right? Hear him. Hear the one whom the father said, hear him. Listen to Jesus. He will guide us in truth. He will teach us his wisdom when we walk in his ways. So continuing in chapter 33, 
But please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Now I open my mouth. My tongue speaks in my mouth. My words come from my upright heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. The spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. If you can answer me, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. Elihu's the first to address Job by his name. Called him by his name. And he shows that he is being personable. He is caring about Job. And he assured him of his upright intentions. And he begged him to hear the things that he was saying because they were for his benefit. And in Elihu, we see a fear of the Lord. In his acknowledgement of being created by God, who breathed life into him, he claimed that God would help him to be able to speak words that were truth. How wise it is to place all our confidence in God and the wisdom revealed by his word. And it's good for us to ask, do I have that sort of confidence in God that every word of God is pure? The things he says are true. We can count on them and we can tell others about them. That we don't need to explain in a secular way how that lifestyle isn't beneficial to you. But what God has said is right. And what God has said is true. And that's what we ought to hold to. This is the wisdom. What God has said. Elihu, he was glad to engage in conversation with Job. And he was confident the things he was saying could bear scrutiny. And he says, Job, get your arguments together. If, if you don't agree with what I'm saying, please give me your reasons. And this is a really key point. Elihu's not climbing up on a soapbox to tell Job how it is. He's not just spouting his convictions or his position. He adopts the posture of Job's spokesman before God. I'm on your side, Job. I'm made of the same stuff as you. I'm, I'm a man too. I'm not better than you. I'm not superior in any way, though you're laying there in dust and ashes covered with boils and hurting. He wasn't just going to give his opinion and walk away. He wanted to continue engaging with him because he cared more about Job than caring about being heard. He wasn't against Job. He was for him. He didn't draw battle lines and arrange his canons of facts to just bombard him and humiliate him or crushing his resolve with information. It wasn't like he had received some heavenly Revelation, his head was now big and he's puffed up with pride and he's, that's what's behind him. His wine, you know, that comparison to the wineskins, I'm ready to burst. It wasn't pride. It was love. It was a desire to, to be heard, but also that Job would hear the wisdom of God. He says, I'm made of the same stuff of you. I'm a frail human being with one delayed breath from death's door. That's what we are. One breath away from eternity. Elihu's not trying to intimidate him. He's not trying to be heavy handed against him. But he's, he's saying, let's just, just listen, please. Please listen to what I have to say. Friends, when you come into conflict, are you able to adopt this humble posture that Elihu does? Even when his wrath was aroused by the things he heard. So he's angry about the things he's heard. He's hearing this debate, this argument, and he doesn't choose a side except God's, 
And he comes in after listening and considering for the good of others. When we're angry, again, when I'm angry, we have to take this personally. Our natural response is to hate, to hit out with our words, maybe even physically, to avoid being around that person. We want to withdraw from them. We don't want to be around them. Elihu spoke in, with all parties present, in person, with them. And he spoke like a friend who was on their side. He was on their team. By faith in God, we can show compassion and mercy when we too hear things that make us upset. When we come into an argument or a discussion that's heated. When there's a, no agreement between brothers and sisters. Oh, for such humility that we would have this sort of humility and grace. I mean, Elihu believed that God was being maligned. And he came at it from this position. And a lot of us would have walked away angry. Would have said, you know, I'm done with this. This is ridiculous. These old guys don't have the answers. And Job's not willing to listen. And, and just walked away and been mad. <laughs> but instead he opens his mouth. He, he, he puts himself out there. And he directed words wisely. He wasn't perfect in his assessment of Job. But he did a lot better than his friends did. Job 33 verse 8. Surely you have spoken in my hearing and I have heard the sound of your words saying, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent. There is no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Look, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. In the Bible knowledge commentary, Zuck says that there are seven phrases that you can go back and the things that Job said in the earlier chapters, and he's quoting from him. He quotes the things that Job has said. So he's been listening. It proves that he has been listening to what Job was saying. And for context, it's important that Job never made a claim of sinless perfection. He was just saying, I'm innocent of these claims that you're leveling against me. You're saying that I've oppressed the widow and the orphan. I haven't. I've actually helped them. You're saying that I have done this and I've oppressed people in the gate. I've stolen their money. I haven't. I've given money away. Like I've been really generous. God in the, in the first chapters asserted and said, Job is a righteous man, blameless and upright. So that's God's assessment of Job. But Job was defending himself and in defending himself from the accusations of his friends, he accused God of treating him like an enemy. That God in some way had been unjust and unrighteous and had made a mistake. This should not be happening to me. Why is this happening to me? Why is God silent? Now it's true. God allowed Job's suffering. There was no escape, but it's wrong to doubt or question God's righteousness or his judgments or his goodness in the midst of pain. That's where we become unrighteous. Elihu said, in this you are not righteous, for God is greater than man. I love Matthew Henry's quote on this. He says, there is enough in this one plain truth that God is greater than man to put to silence all our complaints of his providence and our exceptions against his dealings with us. It is an unreasonable thing for us weak, foolish, sinful creatures to strive with the God of infinite wisdom, power, and goodness. 
Not one of us is guiltless in this matter. God is greater than man. And many times we have questioned him. We have doubted him. We have taken exception. You guys have heard of taking exception? Like I took exception to that. What happens when we take exception to something? Well, usually we stir up some conflict. Um, we re react in some way. Job did not agree it was right for him to suffer all he had. And we would have God do different things if we had the choice. Like if it depended on us to say, well, this is what should have happened or could have happened. We have plenty of ways where we feel God would have been better served or we would have or the situation if something would have happened other than how it happened. But God is greater than man. That ought to ring in our ears when we wonder why we are made to suffer. Because God's greater than all men. He's created. It's unreasonable for us to judge him. We can't know a thing unless he helps us to understand it. And it's ironic. Humans are the one creature. God's given the ability to reason. And we can be most unreasonable. Like so illogical in this matter. So Elihu asks Job directly. Direct question. Why do you contend with him? Why are you fighting with God? Maybe Job didn't realize he was being contentious with God. Why has he tried to defend himself? He's, remember when he was, received the news that his flocks were, were burned and his animals stolen and his servants killed and his children died. What did he do? It says he tore his clothes and he said, the Lord gives and the Lord gives, takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he, he grieved and there was this humility in him and this brokenness before God. But as his friends began to falsely accuse him, it's like the pride in him started reviving. And he began to defend himself against his, his friends. It's like it lay dormant for a while, but it sprang to life. And he started questioning and criticizing God. And his righteous standing by faith did not make it right for him to justify himself rather than God. And Elihu said of God, for he does not give an accounting of any of his words. God's almighty. He's supreme. He's not obliged to clear his plans with you. To tell you what he's doing and why. As if he needs an, to explain himself. He is God. He's not accountable to us. We're accountable to him. He's greater than us. In our age of grace, Jesus has come. He's revealed the glory of of the father to us in human flesh. And it's likely because we are familiar with him that we have brought him down to our level. For instance, we routinely call God father, which is fitting. He is our father. He's more than a father. He is our Lord, our master, our King. Jesus said, you are my friends. If you do whatever I command you. So he calls us friends and, but God's not like our other friends. The terms father and friend, it gives us insight into the close relationship that God desires to have with us. That we have been adopted into his family. We've been made of his own, begotten of God. And that we are now, have this closeness of relationship with him that was impossible in our sin. But he's not like a dad or a mate that we can squabble with. He is God. He's not to be questioned. He's not to be criticized. As if he is unrighteous or doesn't know what he's doing. He is God and he's greater than us. You can take exception to what your dad says. You can take exception to what your friend believes. 
But who are we to contend with God? Who are we to justify ourselves against him? We cannot. When we justify ourselves in conflict and question God, we can be doing just that, contending with him. He's so gracious to us. Job 33, verse 14. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men, while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. In order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. Elihu says God's able to speak in many ways, countless ways. He fashioned us with tongues to speak and to communicate, to be able to write because he speaks, because he communicates. He's given us ears to hear and understand because he can do all things. He hears with perfect accuracy. He's not limited to audible or visual or written words to communicate truth. And he's spoken through, as he says here, through dreams, through visions. We read in the Bible through angels, through his word through children, even a donkey to communicate wisdom and to ask questions that we must answer. And the writer of Hebrews says in these last days, he has spoken to us by Jesus Christ, the son of God, and that he has all means at his disposal to speak to you and to me. He's not limited by us or our knowledge or wisdom. He speaks. He's a glorious God. And he's able to remind us of everything that he said. And to enable us to understand his instruction. And this is really cool. We want to know why a lot of times. Well, this is why. Elihu says God does this for his good purposes. To turn us from evil deeds. To put our pride away from us. And to keep our souls from the pit. To keep us from perishing. From our ruin. Pit, that's a reference to the grave, shakrat, which means to go to ruin, corruption, or decay. Knowing that God has a plan doesn't mean we always agree with his way of bringing us to wisdom. Final verses here, verse 19 through 22. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones so that his life abhors bread and his soul succulent food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones stick out where which once were not seen. Yes, his soul draws near the pit and his life to the executioners. God can speak through visions and dreams. He speaks to us daily through his word. He can also speak through pain through sleepless nights, sickness, and starvation. These are some other ways that God speaks. He can speak in those things too. Lately, I've had my share of sleepless nights interrupted with pain. It's a feature of getting older. I have a great bed, but boy, it, uh, it beats you up trying to sleep. And what comfort these verses brought me as I read them this week I'm lying there at night in pain and I know that God's doing something beyond what I can feel and see by just keeping me awake, keeping me alive. He exposes sin to confess and forsake. He reveals the stench of pride and unbelief that only he can purify when we humble ourselves before him. And it occurred to me that my flesh would rather 
hang on to its sin and die, then humble itself before God and submit to him and everything that he's doing. It happens every day. People hold on to it. They refuse to confess it and forsake it. Sin ruins people's bodies, minds, and souls. God loves us enough as a mediator, a father, and a friend so we can be delivered from death, so that we can be kept from sin. And if it's a, we don't like those sleepless nights, but know that even in that, God is using it to accomplish his purposes beyond your imagination. The things that you don't think you need, God knows what you need. And he's able to supply them. Proverbs 27, verse 5 and 6, it says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Sin flatters us with kisses to betray us. Sleep, we love to just rest in that embrace and those warm covers. But Jesus, he's willing to rebuke us so that we might repent and turn from our sin, that we might be saved, that we might live forever in the light with him. The wounds that Jesus bore on his head, his face, his hands, his side, his feet, it proves his love for you, proves his love for sinners. And when stung with the pain of rebuke, Job may have felt like Elihu was his enemy. He's like, here's another one. You know, I've already answered these three guys and sat them down. And here's this young upstart. He's got something to say and he's hurting and he's upset and he's grieving, but he showed more love speaking than by staying silent in that moment. And this spoke comfort for Job and for us, if we'll receive it, God is greater than man. So why do we contend with him? Elihu would continue his speech and we don't ever hear Job's response to this question. And I think it's good to be left in that rhetorical zone because we all know that there's really no good answer for it. There's no justifiable reason to contend with the God who created us, who, who saved us, who loves us, who gives his wisdom to us. And if you find yourself today in conflict with others and seeking to justify yourself, could it be that you are contending with God? And that's a fight you will not win. He is the one who rules and reigns. We would be infinitely better served praising God and glorifying him, extolling his righteousness and submitting to him because we love him, because we know him, because he has made us born again. The one who resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. We read this in James four, verse seven through 10. Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The pain that Job experienced, the pain that we experience, it can be and will be redeemed by our God to accomplish purposes we don't know. We beg God to change our circumstances or how we feel, and he works and speaks to change us, to change our hearts and change our minds. And instead of agreeing to disagree with God, we ought to submit to him in faith. Have you come to a point where you have agreed to disagree with God? 
And that's how you're keeping peace with him. Because you've agreed to disagree. You don't like what he did. You don't like what he said. You don't like what's happened. Come to that place of falling before him, of humbling yourself. Stop the fight with God. Don't justify yourself. Magnify him. Exalt his holy name because he is good. Praise the Lord for speaking to us to save us, to help us. And as we walk in the fear of the Lord and love by his grace, may we be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us. You are just beyond words how glorious and good you are. And I thank you for... Uh, the, the wisdom that you supply us, the rebuke that you give us, and the comfort and the encouragement that's there, the joy and the peace that's made available through Jesus Christ to us. We praise you for that. We praise you for our Savior and praise you that you are able to do everything that concerns us today, that the work you have begun, you will be faithful to complete. And thank you, Lord, for showing us where we have been contending with you. We, we level our sights on the horizontal, yet we have been making, making war with you. And I pray that you would bring us to a place of humble submission, of rejoicing and thanksgiving, of gratitude, even in the pain, knowing that you're good. When we don't have the answers, Lord, to know that you are our answer. You are our wisdom. You are our righteousness. You are our salvation a deliverer, a redeemer, and our refuge. So we praise you, Lord. We thank you. You are good and holy, and we worship you with our whole hearts, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.